Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. This is a podcast in which I speak to people who have some kind of public voice to try and get a sense of their deepest values, what's driving them in the ways they use their platform, and what they've learned about how we can navigate our deep differences in our fractious and conflicted common life. As usual, we love hearing from you. Please get in touch via Twitter at Sacred Podcast or at ES Oldfield. Um, send us an email, thesacredpodcast at gmail.com. And as you are, I'm sure, very bored of being asked to do, do please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Dr. Stuart Ritchie. Stuart is a lecturer at the Social, Genetic and Developmental Psychiatry Centre at King's College London. He's been a researcher in human cognitive abilities and his most recent book is Science Fictions, which has been published in July 2020. It's a popular science book which presents an insider's view on how fraud, bias, negligence and hype affect scientific research. I really like learning that he was an overconfident frontman in a band in his teenage years, and also the moment when he confesses to a similar rhetorical style to Boris Johnson. We had a really interesting chat about the role science plays in public, the way that power is wielded for good and for ill, and we pondered together about how scientists could maybe have a little bit more ethics training. As usual, you can hear some further reflections from me on the conversation at the end, and I really hope you enjoy listening. So on this podcast, I don't do chit-chat, ease you in. We're going to go straight for the hefty question, which I'm hoping you had a briefing email about. Mm -hmm. What is sacred? So lots of people have um, particularly religious connotations with this word, but we can just strip that away. And what I'm trying to get to is a principle or a value that feels very deep to you, if someone offered you money to give it up, you'd at the very least feel a bit compromised by that. I think increasingly, uh, the, the idea of, of, of skepticism is really important to me. And, I, you know, it, in, in science, um, we, we talk about the, the Mertonian norms. Robert Merton, the sociologist in 1942, had, uh, had these, these four norms of how science should be done. The, the one, the, the, the final one is this organized skepticism thing where you're constantly questioning everything. And I think so many of our problems come from people just not asking questions about stuff, whether that's through uh, uh, social awkwardness or uh, being scared to question authority or being scared to, uh, um, uh, to j- just to speak up. Um, I think so many of our problems within in science, and also you know you've seen this happen in the pandemic and, and various other places, come from just not wanting to ask questions and be skeptical. Whereas you know, as Robert Merton would have said, being skeptical and 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 forcing skepticism on absolutely everything is uh, an integral part of what science is all about. Yeah, interesting. Uh, we're definitely going to come back to that. But before we get there, we'll to that, we're going to put you uh, in a bit of context. We're going to hear a bit of your story, yeah. get a sense of where you come from and the things that have shaped you. So I'm interested in particular, were there any big values, big ideas in the air, in your childhood, political, philosophical, religious? I don't think there were there were any like very strong ideas. I'm from, from a fairly boring, uh, you know, nicely boring uh, background in, in Scotland, just south of Edinburgh. Um I, I guess um, you know, in, in in some in some weird sense, moderation has has been has been you know, whenever anything goes too far in one direction, my parents would always be oh, these mad people saying this or saying that, and and so I feel like maybe that is 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 what taught me to be sort of to be 
questioning whenever something goes off into an extreme uh, in, 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 in whatever way. Um, uh, but that also could just mean that sort of boring Lib Dem voting parents um, have, have, have not given me any particularly strong ideas in my, in my, in my life. I think finding a, a Richard Dawkins book on my uh, the shelf of my uh, from, from my mum when I was kind of late high school made me realise that you can have interesting arguments with people and you can, uh, we set up a debating club in our high school where I very much upset uh, several of the, 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 the other students who and uh, I, I weren't quite weren't uh, perhaps used to the idea of um, robustly debating things like euthanasia and abortion and uh, and, and the existence of God and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, so I think I think it's one of those kind of found a book on the shelf that that made you into a person that made the person you are uh, type uh, types situations that I that I had. Give me three words to describe Stuart as a teenager. <laughs> um, uh, confident or perhaps overconfident. Uh, I joined various bands and would be the lead singer in in, in various bands. I was from about fifteen. I, I was in various rock, rock bands. We played in, re- rehearsed in garages and things like that. And we and we did that. And I used to um, uh, uh, jump around on the stage in a really you know what must have been very embarrassing to to, to look at uh, and embarrassing to watch. But people would always say, "Oh, you've got so much energy." That was what they were saying. I don't. I didn't know if that was a sort of a way of them saying. Just calm down a little bit. But I noticed Boris Johnson does this thing where when he's talking in front of an audience, he's kind of joking a little bit with the audience and he's kind of saying, not in so many words, but he's sort of saying, this is all a bit of a laugh. We're all having a laugh here. This isn't that serious. But he's playing that it's serious to the other person he's talking to or whatever. But he's kind of winking at the audience, not yeah. not deliberately. And, and I realise I do that as well. I've obviously been reading a lot of what you've written and listening to podcasts yeah. and... Uh, one of my interests in, in is in how we kind of cross these divides, how we have conversations with people dis- we disagree with well. Yeah. And lots of people in that space, lots of people who are scientists or who are public figures with a voice in these kind of things, have a certain kind of scrappy energy about them. I've got lots of friends who are rationalists or yeah. uh, they self-describe skeptics, but there's much more of a, like, this is a serious battle that we're in, guys. Uh, whereas your energy is very... Um, playful and uh, calm, even when you're having conversations about, you know, COVID data and how do we navigate these life and death risks and what do we owe to each other as society? Do you think it's temperamental? Is it from your parents? Do you see it? Do you have a hunch about where it comes from? I realised early on that if you you talk in that sort of style, people will get on side and, and, and I don't have any, you know, stage fright or, or, or uh, worry about public speaking like, like many people do. I mean, there's, I was reading about uh, just recently about there's a psychology uh, paradigm, like a sort of um, uh, in social psychology, like a type of experiment that they do where um, the, 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 the thing they, um, they use to induce anxiety is to make people do a speech in front of a, a panel of people because it's just so common to be. And I thought to myself, I wouldn't bother with that. I can sort of extemporaneously speak on stuff and it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, I, I'm not saying it's high quality, but yeah. it doesn't make me feel anxious. What so, does make you feel anxious? Um, people, uh, um, letting, letting people down, uh, expe- people expecting things and you you haven't done them yet. And I unfortunately um, say yes to almost everything people ask uh, in terms of um, work-related things, writing. Do you want to write on, work on this paper? Yeah, sure. Do you want to help supervise my PhD student? Yeah, sure. 
do, do you want to um, come to a different country and do a talk this day, even though you've got several other things the day before and the day after? Yeah, all right. And and I and I um and then the problem is I, I say yes to so many things that I then worry about. Uh, well, I then I then you know can't can't do everything and that and that and I and I worry about letting everyone down. That's my that's my major anxiety. It's all very social anxiety. Yeah, you're being very patient with me asking personal questions, which I know academics uh, tend to hate. But your discipline almost felt like it gave me a little bit more leeway because you um, are in psychology. It's your kind of uh, overarching discipline. Tell me what drew you to it. What was the road to psychology? Very embarrassing because um, uh, psychology has this reputation as like the. The thing that if you don't really know what you want to do at university, you kind of choose psychology. Um, and that's that was me. So I remember having a, a chat with the careers counsellor at the end of high school. And she said, well, you're doing okay in science things. And you seem to be doing okay in you know English and all that sort of stuff. And you want to speak to, you, you're interested in people and so on. How about psychology? And I thought, oh, all right then. And then, and then and I took it. I think I actually spelled psychology wrong on my application form to university. <laughs> I think I put psychology or something like that. Um, uh, 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 that's how much I knew about the topic. We didn't have it in, in school. So it was very much a kind of a, here's something that seems like a halfway house between, um, you know, being interested in people and being interested in, you know, science things maths data but yeah i chose psychology because because i didn't really know what else to do and then it turns out that actually it's quite actually it's quite fun i started realizing you know there are lots of really interesting controversial things in psychology that i can you know get interested in there are lots of debates and then um you know i've just followed you know in d- debatable controversial topics in psychology ever since what do you love about something that's causing a bit of heat first of all it's a really good way to learn if, if there's some very controversial issue, it's a really good way to learn about things. So I know everything I know about evolutionary biology because I got interested in creationists and arguing with creationists while I was an undergrad. And we had uh, a creationist, uh, there was a church nearby that had very, very um, uh, hardcore young earth creationists who would bring in a speaker every week and do a talk. And me and a couple of pals would go and sit in the back and then we would debate them in a very, uh, I think we became quite friendly because not in, a, in an aggressive way at all, not in a um, shouty way that you associate with students. And in order to properly debate these things, you've got to go and learn how, how things work in terms of the, the, the biology. And so I learned everything about that. It's the same with uh, you know, learning. It's much more fun to learn, to, to me anyway, to learn about climate science from you know, seeing what uh, you know obsessive cranks on the internet say about it and seeing how that's been debunked rather than just a book about the dry you know science of, of climate change so that's always much more um, interesting and then you know it spurred my interest in, in science as well because one of my major interests in in in, uh, in psychology is is, uh, is is individual differences people's differences in their, uh, in their intelligence their cognitive abilities and their personalities and so on and obviously especially when you start bringing in genetics and the brain and so on, that becomes extremely controversial. Um, and I think it helps you sharpen the arguments when a field is controversial. So, uh, you know, my colleague Robert Plowman uh, was doing a lecture just yesterday for our students. He was kind of reflecting on why behaviour genetics as an area of psychology, um, the, 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 although lots of areas of psychology have kind of had their, que- had their findings questioned in the past few years, um, the basic core findings of behavior genetics haven't really been. I mean, there are people who have always been skeptical of them, but within the scientific field, there's not been this huge revolution in, um, in the same way that there has been in social psychology, say, where a lot of the experiments have been kind of undermined. And, and, and one of the reasons for that, he thinks, is that um, uh, it's been criticized for decades and decades. We've had this constant debate, this constant argument, this constant criticism for so long mm. that it helps you sharpen up the arguments. The, the standards are very, very high yeah. because people are 
um, are, are, are perhaps offended or whatever by the by 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 the, the the results, and I think in many cases, due to misunderstandings of the, of the results, they're offended. But that offence causes people to have a very high high bar for evidence, mm. and, uh, and and behavior geneticists have had to have had to kind of go and leap over that. And and so I think that's one really important reason why you know debate is 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 is, is worth doing because you come at, at the end of it and you think, well, actually, I have um, I've uh, I've sharpened up my arguments. And I don't mean debate in the sense of, uh, you know... Personal attacks. Or... Right, exactly, exactly. Um, I don't mean, you know, just ag- aggro for the sake of aggro. Um, and I also don't mean um, someone does a 10-minute opening, an next person does a 10-minute opening, five minutes rebuttal. Like, that's entertaining, but it's not actually really helpful in, in terms of sharpening things up. And it's not what, you know, um, uh, Robert Merton would have talked about in terms of the scepticism in science. Uh, that's, you know, vulnerable to all sorts of strategies where you just throw out tons and tons of arguments and then your opponent doesn't debunk them all and and and, and you say well you, you only debunked some of my arguments and therefore sure. i've won the debate and that's not the way to get to the truth but 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 debate in general and uh, and, and and longer form uh, arguments and so on i think is, is is worthwhile yeah um you mentioned shouty students and controversies so i would be remiss if i didn't ask you about the current academic climate and the context of this is I really struggle to get a hand on on what is actually happening. And I've read, you know, the open letters signed by the academics saying they're being censored and the open letters by the academics saying stop being such babies, you're not being censored. And the various statistics that are thrown about, about instances of people feeling professionally squashed. And, you know, there's a the Netflix series at the moment, The Chair, which is all about that. It's... It's not a sort of necessarily empirically particularly amenable question. Is there a kind of chilling of academic yeah. freedom? Yeah, almost by definition, you can't. Yeah. You can't know. Yeah. So, uh, what, what, with the data available to you, slash your your personal experience as someone who's just come from teaching students, do you think you're more nervous about wading into controversies, saying, saying public opinions about controversies now than you were? Do you get a sense that your colleagues were, or will this all just come out in the wash? Um, yes, I'm more nervous about talking about. Uh, my own, you know, research interests. I think now than I than I was, even though I've always taken a very moderate stance on you know human intelligence and, and so on. I think I've always, you know, um, uh, w- without throwing everything out, which is what a lot of people want, and just saying that none of this makes any sense, um, or becoming obsessed with it and saying that it's the only thing uh, that, that that makes any you know that's, that's worth studying. Um, on the on the other hand, and there are people who represent both those extremes. I've always tried to take a fairly moderate stance of saying. You know, intelligence tests are useful in some contexts. They're part of uh, a, a full psychological evaluation, uh, uh, and you know, shouldn't be understood to to be a measure of worth or uh, anything anything moral like that. But uh, but are just a, a, an interesting predictive tool. I, I think I am more nervous now to say them because I think, and this possibly is because I have more followers on Twitter now than I used to, and so there's more people responding. But I think. Uh, you get more pushback for saying things, which I think, you know, five five years ago, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't get uh, the same amount of pushbacks. But um, I do think there's a kind of a uh, um, a certain set of people who are out there to misinterpret and uh, and, and and kind of view this as a sort of a, a culture war. It's a culture war. I mean, they, they view their, they view themselves as as being at war uh, in some sense. And 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 when you're at war, you don't need to make you know. Uh, um, you don't need to consider the other people's arguments in very much detail or be charitable to them. You just need to smash them down and um, and accuse them of being, you know, all sorts of all sorts of terrible things. So um, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm I am somewhat more nervous. I do think the climate on places like Twitter 
is, uh, is, is, is pretty bad for discussing controversial topics. Um, I think the, the, the idea of getting piled on and so on is, is, pretty, is pretty horrible. I'm a fairly junior academic and I wouldn't want to you know, risk my c- career and so on. So I, I do think there's a, there's a bad atmosphere um, uh, about that sort of stuff. I just would be a wee bit nervous now about, um, you know, just talking about uh, you know, some new paper I've done on cognitive development or something without adding lots of caveats and being very careful about how um, uh, it's said. And, you know, to some extent, you might say, adding caveats and being careful is really good as well. That's good science. Um, I'm interested in uh, um, what's, you know, in the last few years become known as sociogenomics. That's uh, linking genetic variables to what would be considered social outcomes, like education, for instance. There's lots of research on that. And, uh, you know, Paige Harden, Catherine Page Harden has written this book um, uh, recently called The Genetic Lottery that, that, that just came out last week, I think, that focuses very much on, on, on uh, this kind of thing of how could genes be linked to education? What does that mean? What does that mean for social equality and so on. So she's getting all the all the fire from sort of both sides of, of, of that debate currently. But I'm interested in that topic. Um, and recently, uh, people have started adding Q&A or, or um, I should say uh, FAQ documents to their scientific papers to say, you know, you might think that this means this, but however, I just want to let you know that uh, this doesn't mean that people are determined in some sense, or it doesn't mean that people are uh, have their have their worth uh, um, uh, designated to them at birth from their DNA and that's it uh, or, or anything like that and, and people are being much clearer and so to that extent I think the sort of atmosphere is is, is, is quite good in that um, it allows scientists to be better at communicating their results and to think more about how they write things down and, and there are ways uh, you know in scientific papers that, that things can be written which do generate controversy and generate you know uh, get people's backs up essentially and so to that extent it's good having said that if the criticisms are valid, then it doesn't matter if the person that, that's making them hates your guts, right? It, uh, if the criticisms are valid, then you should respond to them and, and, and or try and head them off or you know anticipate them in some way when you're writing. So um, those controversial areas are uh, are, um, are are perhaps you know they're reacting to the criticism in in in, in some you know some good ways. They're reacting to them in, in some other in some bad ways too. I think um, there are certain topics now that. Uh, you're just so there's all this open data, this open genetics data that you can use to, you know, do various research studies, um, and some of those uh, databases are now kind of being closed off if you're interested in certain questions. But it does seem to me odd when I go on to the genetics, uh, social, um, sociogenomics, I should say, website, and it says you can't have these data if you're going to do any research to do with differences between groups of, of, of people. Wow. Um, you just can't have it, yeah. um, and in fact, we'll. It doesn't quite say this, and in, in uh, we'll, we'll basically we'll, we'll complain to your university and might even sue you if you if you use our data to do this. We will hunt you down yeah. if you make yeah. racist claims based on this data. It doesn't or seem something. very open science, and I feel like um, it, it it merely validates the conspiracy that lots of the kind of race obsessed far right people out there who are interested in this research have, which is geneticists have something to hide and they don't want anyone to do this 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 research and you know i think it's i think the block is there for a well-meaning for for you know a, 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 what they think is a, is, a, is a good reason which is that this research is so inherently confounded by all sorts of social and other factors that you'll just never get anything uh, worthwhile and if you put that result out it'll cause lots of social uh, uh controversy and pain and so on and it's and, and, and it's actually not going to be based on good science and i'm sympathetic to that but i do think you're kind of you're seeding the ground somewhat to 
uh, to, 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 to the bad researchers, the ones that are only interested in you know, causing that controversy by saying all the good researchers are not allowed to do any of this research ever. Yeah. When you encounter um, controversy or pushback, I know most recent you wrote a review of a book and the people took against that on their podcast. Yeah. And uh, what? And it was the first time I've seen you in all of the things I've read and listened to about you where I could sense the exasperation. Where do you go with your emotional life on that kind of things? Do you have practices? Do you have people? Do you do exercise? Do you meditate? Like, what are the things that you use to navigate um, that kind of whole person part of you yeah, that's not just a scientist? It's very much other people. So I think sharing things with people, not in public on Twitter and so on, but sharing sharing things with with other people, with, with with friends who are kind of already interested in these topics or know the people who are going to cause controversy and so on, um, is massively helpful because you, you share something and they'll they'll say, oh, don't, don't worry about it so much. And and there's a social aspect to it as well, right? If you get criticised by certain people on online or whatever, like these like these people, um, it, it, if their social status is a certain is a certain way, then it becomes what orthodox mag to be criticised by them because you're just it's just not something that's ever going to cause you any problems. Whereas if you were being criticised by people who are much higher status in your own friend group or whatever, you really would feel that and you would worry and you would lie awake at night. I don't really, it doesn't bother me at all that um, that fans of uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying are, are criticising me online because I don't really consider them, I don't, like, if, if you're a fan of those people, then you're not the sort of person that I really care about the view the view of it i must say uh having a set of people who are kind of interested in this topic who are always always talking about it in you know in in, in private helps you get around it because you can you can have make jokes make in jokes about, about these sort of things and, and and get over any um insults and so on i wasn't bothered by by that stuff at all i was exasperated certainly but i wasn't bothered in the sense of being worried that it would you know ruin my life or or, or, or whatever yeah i would love to hear what you think is science's social role right now depending on who you listen to it's either you know in crisis and there's so much misinformation or it has become the new priesthood and it's the only truth that anyone is interested in anymore obviously you're not going to say yes to either of those extremes but (laughs) how would you narrate it yeah um i think uh the the conformity priesthood thing is very worrying because that that tends to be bought into by people who are powerful in science and so on i mean and i've 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 talks about this in, in, in many different articles over the over the kind of the pandemic. What happened at the start of the pandemic was this really horrible display of this conformity uh, with, you know, on the topic of masks, on the topic of herd immunity, on the topic of whether the coronavirus was dangerous at all. I mean, my own field uh, back in February, March 2020 in psychology, there was this weird uh, group thing that developed that, you know, if, if you're worried about this coronavirus thing, then there's something wrong with your brain. Your brain is biased in some way. You're not understanding risk properly. You're not uh, dealing with the, you know, the numbers properly. And we know. And you had very, very big name figures in the world of, you know, um, uh, uh, risk psychology or judgment and decision making. They would call it psychology. Uh, writing articles saying, you know, everyone, calm down. Yeah, calm down. And you, and it's not just, not even just calm down, but but you, there's something wrong with you if you find if you're worried about this. There's something wrong with you. Um, and uh, I criticised them in, a, in an article um, that I wrote. That was one of my first articles of the sort of writing about coronavirus uh, uh, thing. And it was called Don't Trust the Psychologists. But they loved it. Got in big trouble. I, uh, I, re- I really think that was, that was a, an, an amazingly depressing, um, you know, application of 
sometimes lab-based psychology to the real world where it just fell flat on its face. And we all know what happened after that. We had, you know, we, we, it showed that people were indeed right to be, you know, really concerned and worried about their families and buying toilet roll and all the stuff that they were doing at the start of the, the pandemic, which we all remember so well. Um, so, so I think there's this group thing. And then it moved into different group think about masks. Masks don't work. And in fact, if you wear a mask, it's bad and it's going to make you more likely to get coronavirus. And it's just that overconfidence um, uh, that, as you said, this kind of priesthood thing is, is that the priesthood have told you this and we're now going to be super confident in it and really vehement in the message. Um, you Do not wear them. The US Surgeon General, do not wear masks in, cap, in capital letters, he wrote, you know, um, uh, and, and, and you know the thing that I pointed out in this article with my friend uh, Michael Story was was that it's the it's the vehemence of it it's the it's the um, the lack of uncertainty um, that we were really complaining about not that people got things wrong because getting things wrong is inevitable everyone is going to get something wrong and have to change their opinion and that's completely fine I think you can trust people's intelligence to a much greater degree you can say like we're not 100 percent sure of this there's some evidence this way and there's some evidence that way. You know, probably precautionary principle. You should wear. You should wear a mask. Um, would have been a good. Would have been a decent argument. I think you could have backed that up. So I think science was used in the initial stage of the pandemic to, uh, in this very very tribal social sense of you know there are all these idiots out there who are who are who are wearing masks. How dare they do something that goes against the consensus? And now of course it's the complete other way around. And I don't think. Um, it's anti-science or or anti-institution or whatever to point that out now um, that there was this major U-turn. And I think that U-turn would have been a lot easier and you would have had less pushback and less people saying, well, I don't need to wear a mask because you were saying a few months ago yourself very strongly that we shouldn't wear a mask and what's changed? Yeah, yeah I wasn't hugely impressed by, by, by the way that science was used at the start. So tell me about... Um, what led you to write the book? Because you've basically turned your kind of sceptical instinct on science itself. Was yeah. there a was there a kind of, what do they call it in narrative theory? Was there a kind of triggering incident or a moment where you yeah. were just might, like, this is terrible, yeah. what do we do? Yeah, there was, and it was during my, during my PhD. Uh, and one of the things I'm interested in is, is parapsychology, which um, we have, uh, we have, uh, when I was at University of Edinburgh, we had a, a parapsychology unit. We had academics who were actively researching psychic abilities telekinesis so moving things with your mind precognition you're predicting the future uh clairvoyance so seeing into, into things which you can't physically see presentiment is another one is you know having it feeling something before it before uh, um uh, you know you, you feel upset and then you find out that someone's died and you can you know, all that all that kind of thing so it was particularly interesting when this paper appeared yeah. in uh, in 2011 uh um when i was doing my phd by daryl bem who's this very famous social psychologist at Cornell University in the US. And he claimed that his undergraduate students had psychic powers. He claimed that he could show in the lab that his undergraduate students could predict the future using some kind of uh, uh, precognitive means that were unknown to science. Um, and it was experiments like, I mean, the classic one is you're shown two curtains on the screen and uh, you're told that there's a picture behind one of them. Um, and you kind of go, well, how, which, how could I possibly know? And you know, just whichever one you feel the picture is behind. So you click one of them at fairly at, at, at random. And if it's just a picture of something boring like a table or something, then you get it 50% of the time, as you would expect. But what he claimed in this paper was if you put a pornographic picture behind one of the curtains, then people get it at like 
53.1% of the time or something. Because their sort of lustfulness is activated? Yes, their their lustfulness is activated into into the future. They have a future sense that they're about to see some sort of erotic material uh, and and it makes them more likely to to like to click the one where they will know that it has that it has appeared. Um, oh and then it, it also he also showed the opposite direction too where uh where um if you have a violent picture behind one of the curtains people are less likely to click that one and so obviously i was skeptical of this when it came out um, but this was you know published in the mainstream scientific literature in a very prestigious mainstream psychological journal uh and we thought we'd replicate it so actually with chris french and richard wiseman and i we got together and we we ran the same experiment again three times so not the not the pornographic one but one which was about words much less you know Clickbaiting. Talk about on a yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not so exciting to tell people the story off, but it, it was basically about seeing seeing a bunch of words and then writing down as many of them as you could remember, and then seeing some of the words later, and having seen some of those words later made you remember them better in the past. My head exploding at the thought of that. But it's like studying for an exam, doing the exam, and then studying, going home and studying a bit afterwards, and that extra studying actually helping you in, in the in the exam. That's what he claimed was the case. Wow. And we found absolutely nothing. So we found no evidence that this was happening at all, that our undergraduates had any psychic abilities whatsoever. Um, uh, uh, and that was obviously you know, very disappointing for some people. And it was the kind of trigger moment for me, which has been a long way of getting to this, answer this question. But the trigger moment for me was when we sent the paper that we wrote up of that negative replication or null replication, failed replication, we sent it to the same journal that had published Daryl Bem's original paper. And uh, they said, we're not publishing this. And in fact, we wouldn't be interested in any replication study whatsoever. So we'll publish the original finding, the very exciting finding about about uh, um, psychic powers, but we but we won't publish any replications, whether positive or negative. That's just not a thing we're interested in. And that really got me thinking. That really got me thinking, is this how science should work? That journals are interested in the flashy, exciting stuff and not the perhaps more boring but more reliable research that, that comes that comes later. Um, and uh, uh, we eventually did get it published somewhere else, but that really made me think that the incentives are not quite right in science. You know, I was I was doing my PhD and then, you know, the early, the early part of my postdoc at a very pivotal time in the field of psychology, you know, psychological science, where we really were starting to say, wow. Do the, we know anything? Exactly. The foundations of what we thought we knew about you know, social psychology or um, and, and many other areas too are just crumbling. I know the whole edifice might, might come down. And in some subfields of psychology, it really did. Tell me the four ways that science goes wrong yeah, in as well, layman's terms as much as you possibly can. Yes, yes. Well, so uh, uh, the four ways that I identify in the book are fraud, bias, negligence, and hype. So fraud uh, is fairly straightforward. Uh, there are far too many scientists, I mean, a minority, but far too many, who just make up their results. So who, instead of uh, you know going out and collecting data in an experiment, will open up an Excel spreadsheet, just type in the numbers they want uh, for their experiment, and then often hand that data, in inverted commas, to their PhD students and say, look, I've collected some data, use this in your PhD dissertation. Uh, uh, and it was never, it never existed to begin with. How widespread do you think this is? Well, if you ask people, if you just ask scientists, then about 2% of them admit that, yes, I have committed some sort of data fabrication or falsification in my, in my career. If you ask them... Uh, 
have any of your colleagues ever done this? Do you know someone who's done this? About 14% of them will say that they have some you know, suspicion or, or some knowledge of, of, of fraud. Um, that was from a set of survey studies that was done quite a while ago now, 10 years ago, but you know, that needs to be updated. But that was the best evidence we have from, 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 from that. Um, it's a minority, but it's far too many. Then uh, fraud blurs into the second thing, which is bias, which is where scientists can often... In many cases, when they're doing their, when they're setting up their experiment or when they're doing their analysis of their data, can basically put their finger on the scale uh, and push the results in the direction that they want. Um, scientists are not these 100% objective, disinterested, robotic machines. They're human beings, and they often want a hypothesis to, to, to be true. They want, for, for very good reasons, their drug to work, to cure whatever disease they're looking at. They want the um, uh, some... Uh, you know, economic aspect to relate to some other uh, aspect of well-being, whatever it happens to be, because they, you know, that would help them explain the world. It would help them help people. Also, for some less good reasons too, right? Just like because it's that's what the incentive structure is for sure. the career. Exactly, exactly. So, um, and that all becomes all, all blurred and merged in in, in people's um, uh, in people's careers. You know, uh, they set out to try and help people, but also. If you're helping people, that's you getting positive results and getting positive results gets you more papers and gets you more grants and gets you more promotions and gets you more fame and gets you more prestige. Um, and that's not how science should work. And I think the insidious thing about that is people don't realise. So people don't realise uh, that they're putting their thumb on the scale. They do it unconsciously. And it's this unconscious bias that is kind of pushing them towards positive results uh, over over rigorous results, just f- interesting, flashy, cool results, yeah. rather than things that which are which are real. And I think you can you can convince yourself post hoc. You can say to yourself, "Oh well, you know um, that experiment that gave us flat, completely null results. The drug didn't work. Actually, you know, for whatever reason, that that wasn't a very good experiment. So yeah, I won't even bother. Again. I won't bother pushing that one up, uh, pushing that one into a journal. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll work on another another one. That I find yeah. positive results. So you can sort of convince yourself. So so the incentive structure is is bad in that respect. Then I move on to talk about just basic, just slips, errors, uh, negligence, where people, where scientists are not checking, not rigorous, whether the, their their numbers are correct. And there are these studies of uh, uh, where an algorithm checks the statistics in a paper, goes through goes through thousands of scientific papers and checks whether the statistics are all actually numerically consistent with each other and finds that in some huge proportion of cases they're not. Wow. And this can only have come about through you know widespread error probably copy and paste errors, typos. And then the final one being hype, which is, I think, is, 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 you know, scientists going beyond the data, exaggerating the results beyond what the data can actually show. And I think this is extremely common in uh, popular science, people writing books that are based on some interesting studies where there is a kernel of truth and a kernel of, of good research and, and, and good quality stuff. But of course, the incentive to sell more books and to make your book sound more exciting is to say, this is the cure for cancer, or this is the uh, um, way that you will revolutionize your life and it'll help you study, it'll change your relationships, it'll help, you know, whatever it is, is to hype things up way beyond what the often very patchy data can show. And um, all these things added together, um, I think they come about because of the way that academia is set up. So the way that academia and things attached to academia, like popular science writing and so on, are set up, which is that there are, you know, I have a chapter on perverse incentives. The incentive is not to... Uh, uh, find the truth necessarily. The incentive is to find something that's publishable, yeah. find something that we can get into a journal and a, a high impact, prestigious, glamorous journal at that. Yeah. Um, and that really goes against all these principles of being rigorous, checking things, being skeptical, um, transparent, and, and open and transparent. Because you know, why be all these things when you can 
hoard your own data and publish lots of good stuff out of it. You know, the, the average person who reads about science reads about it in the news rather than in scientific yeah. journals, and they're reading it. It's been it's been put through the... What's going to be most interesting filter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Can you give me an example of where you either have done one of those four or you've felt the strong temptation to? Because presumably it's the kind of thing that once you're in the machine, these temptations are all over the place. Where you're most likely to be negligent uh, is not necessarily with your own work, though. It's as a peer reviewer. And this is the scary thing because peer review is meant to be the quality filter. And I've definitely found myself when peer reviewing people's work, found myself looking at my watch and thinking, oh God, I've, you know, skim, I, I skim, skim. other things to do. I need to read through. And, 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 and you know, you submit your review and then, and I, I do try and be rigorous in peer reviews and I, I try and spend a lot of time on them, but everyone's got their own stuff on. Yeah. You don't get paid to do peer reviews or, or any other incentive really other than just out of the goodness of your heart yeah. to help help the scientific process. And you do sometimes feel afterwards, you know, I could have just taken a few more hours to, to dig into this. I could have asked the journal to, to get the authors to send me their data set and really dig into it. Yeah. But who has that time? I don't know much about the history and philosophy of science, but I gather that lots of the origins of the scientific method were related to a particular kind of Puritan Christian anthropology about sin, about we are sinful and self-deceitful, and so we put these guards in of the scientific method um, to help us get closer to the truth because we can't trust the human heart, which is a particularly kind of bleak version of a Christian um, anthropology. And lots of what you're saying strikes me as kind of character questions in old-fashioned language or virtue questions. I'm trying to reach for less old-fashioned sounding language, but I can't find it. And I know, because I've read it, that your answer is a very good one about the scientific method can be turned on itself to fix some of these problems, you know, better incentives, better safeguards. But is there something about how, how do we want to be better? How do we seek these very intangible things like truth, humility, you know, self-sacrifice of our own good for the good of the wider community or the good of truth or the good of society. How can science teach these things? And if not, where do you go looking for them? Where, where do you think we can build that muscle as people interested in truth? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, I, and, and I think it is, there are some, you know, all those aspects of being, of being humble and intellectually, intellectual, intellectual humility and all that stuff. Uh, it's very rarely explicitly taught you do a statistics class only recently have people started, you know, bringing in all these uh, kind of open science type ideas and, and saying, you know, we need to share things with each other and, and be ready for people to criticize you and, and, and so on, as the kind of open science movement has has uh, uh, has had more of an effect. And it's still very much a minority thing. The average person is still just being taught in a, in a very practical and, and uh, pragmatic way how to do statistics that will help them do their analysis and not thinking about it in a kind of stepping back and thinking about it in a more, in a, in a, in a broader sense that the, the, the reason that we're doing statistics in the first place is that we can't trust our own judgment about how a particular experiment works or uh, you can't just ask someone how they feel about something or um, uh, or, or whatever. You, you want to use some actual attempt at an objective measurement of, of, of that. And that's very much what you were saying about, you know, you, you can't, you can't, uh, uh, we're, we're all fallible in, in, in various ways and the scientific method corrects that. And, you know, my argument in the book is that that human fallibility has sort of eaten away at the, at the scientific, not necessarily the, the method or the process of science, because those are principles which stand uh, uh, aside, but certainly at the, um, the institutions of science, where we, where we do this stuff. Um, and I think people are implicitly and sometimes explicitly taught 
to go against all these intellectual humility uh, positions and all and all these things which would make the science more rigorous. They're taught to tell a nice story with their results. They're taught to just dig around until you find something. They're taught to value publishing research in very glamorous, high-impact journals and go for the the, the, the exciting gold, uh, you know, um, results, regardless really of whether those are, are are true or not. You know, you hear people all the time saying, "My my supervisor pressured me into." You know, running an analysis that I knew was kind of wrong, but but it got the results that he or she wanted, um, uh, and 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 so when you have an institution that's that often the senior figures in it are, are they they've made their career, yeah, the old way of doing science or the the flawed way of doing science, they've become really successful and got you know very long CVs of lots of nice papers and stuff based on you know often often very very you know uh, process uh, practices that are not good for science. So how do you? Uh, uh, how do you push back against that? And I think, you know, we we're, we have this kind of bottom-up and top-down uh, um, set of incentives that are changing. You know, people are talking about this stuff in science much more. People are being educated as they start their PhD. But we need to also do something about the more senior academics who have who have um, have, have have kind of failed to learn these mm. these skills uh, or have got themselves into a position where they no longer really need to think about it. Is there, because when you're trying to be a journalist, there is an ethics module. Is there a sort of standard ethics module in undergraduate science? Well, in psychology, the ethics tends to be much more focused on... Your participants, uh, right? Yeah, not, exactly. not exploiting your participants. Don't exploit them. Don't make them feel worse when they leave than when they came in. Yeah. You know, don't... Uh, don't traumatise them. Give them an enormous electric shock or whatever, whatever it is. Like, like uh, it, it's very much, it's very much focused on that. But I think you could, obvi- like, it's very obvious that you could make the argument that wasting the taxpayer's money on doing crap experiments that don't replicate is unethical. Um, getting participants to come in to your, to your study um, and making them spend their time on something which is just going to be a load of nonsense. Just for your own status. Right, and certainly running randomized controlled trials where you're giving people drugs uh, uh, and then, you know, if that trial was set up in such a way that it could never actually produce any useful information, you know, in any case, that's unethical, surely. Um, so uh, I think this is this is much this could be a much bigger part of you know just a scientist's training. Um, lots of universities do these kind of doctoral training programs now, where when you do your PhD, you you don't just get taught by your supervisor; you get taught by the university in general. So there's a bit more kind of yeah. continuing uh, uh, professional development, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think I think you know ethics, as you say, um, alongside all these things, which clearly merge into each other, open science and the ethics of doing things all kind of overlap in various ways, um, that could be taught more explicitly. Um, it's just that we still have an incentive structure and still have an old guard of scientists who are who are kind of pushing back against it. Well, maybe roping in the theology and philosophy departments to help would be a good way forward. Stuart Ritchie, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Great pleasure. Thank you. Well, what a lovely guy. I think Stuart Ritchie might be the least tortured and conflicted person I have ever interviewed. And he still still seemed really a lot like the teenager that he said he used to be, confident, energetic, and calm. And it was really interesting that he clearly enjoys debates and controversies. As a teenager, I can just imagine him, the debating society kind of ringleader wanting to debate creationists or to take someone's argument apart and feeling funny real glee in those debates and that he's clearly quite immune to the emotional temperature 
of controversies. In fact, maybe he's drawn to the emotional temperature of those controversies. And he gave some really good arguments for why in terms of sharpening of data and arguments and positions, which was really convincing. But it made me think again about the way our temperaments and our personalities self-select maybe who's in those conversations or who can tolerate being in those conversations long-term. It reminded me of a quote from Haruki Murakami, who said, always remember that to argue and win is to break down the reality of the person you are arguing against. It is painful to lose your reality. So be kind, even if you're right. I loved uh, Stuart comparing himself to Boris Johnson. And actually, I could see it, this sort of smiling half-jokiness. And I'm reminded how effective it is with Stuart and with Boris Johnson. It's one of the reasons lots of people love him, that there's always a twinkle. And I imagine that it's it, it's really effective even when you're talking about quite serious things to help people control their own emotional reaction to things. And he was really honest about the fact that there are just people he doesn't respect, so he doesn't care if they criticise him. I think that's probably true of a lot of people and it was quite refreshing to hear it. And it's not just that he doesn't care if people he doesn't respect criticise him, but actually in some ways that it maybe builds his social status. Certain groups of people criticise him. It is a boon for his standing amongst his friends. And that's made me notice that dynamic playing out a lot, actually, in our public conversations. And some less scrupulous people are clearly stoking the critique of outgroups or tribes that they don't respect as a way of playing to the gallery of their own team. We really got to the heart of the matter, I think, in terms of the reliability of science because of, and this is from my perspective, a real sense of a lack of moral formation for scientists. You know, Stuart's book really argues that they're just as susceptible to exaggeration and self-promotion and outright fraud as the rest of us, but we're basing so many, so many decisions and stories and worldviews on their findings. And um, yes, the scientific method itself is one kind of tool in that battle, but I certainly would come from the perspective that um, the, the... The human heart is the heart of the matter and how you form it and shape our desires and our courage and our virtue. And the thing I didn't get to ask him, which I really wish I had, was when your sacred value is scepticism, how do you prevent scepticism becoming the universal acid that burns through everything? If the kind of negative, negating, critiquing posture is necessary, which he's persuaded me that it is, how do you build? What is the positive? Who do you trust? But maybe that's about community or different people having different callings. Anyway, those are some of my thoughts. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.